Welcome to Coin Flips and Controversies, an OrthoBullet's original series dedicated to exploring gray zone decisions in orthopedic surgery. This episode of Coin Flips and Controversies is sponsored by Masses, the annual Mid-Atlantic Shoulder and Elbow Society meeting taking place this September in Washington, D.C. At this time, we will hand it over to the webinar faculty. We hope you enjoy the webinar. Well, welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us uh, here on OrthoBullets for Coin Flips and Controversies. My name is Joel Bood. I'm a shoulder surgeon at Rothman Orthopedics in Philadelphia. And today, this is uh, being sponsored also by Mid-Atlantic Shoulder Elbow Society, which this year will be held again in Washington, D.C. on Friday, September 9th. It's always a very fun, interactive meeting. We have many faculty from around the Mid-Atlantic region, and we have our presidential speaker, Brian Cole, coming in from Rush Orthopedics to give us some great talks and uh, panels as well. This case will be presented today by my co-chair and great friend and colleague, Jack Kazanjan. He will introduce himself and introduce the rest of the co-chairs and panel. Joe, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Jack Kazanjan. I'm a shoulder and elbow surgeon in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I work at Premier Orthopedics and Sports Medicine Associates, and I have an academic affiliation with the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. Uh, my co-chairman in our meeting and also my panel members for this evening are Joe Abood, Dr. Anand Murthy, and Dr. Brent Weasel. I'm going to have a Dr. Murthy also introduce himself. Then when he's completed his uh, brief introduction, I'm going to have Dr. Weasel introduce himself as our panelist. Thanks, Jack uh, and Joe. This is a great meeting in September, uh, probably one of the funnest uh, meetings I go to uh, every year. I'm Anand Murthy. I'm Chief of Shoulder Surgery at Union Memorial Hospital in Baltimore. I run our fellowship and direct our research program. And it's a great panel and great co-chairs that I've worked with for many years. I'm Brent Weasel, Chief of Shoulder Surgery at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital in Washington. Been involved with Masses uh, with Joe and Jack uh, from the start. I think we brought on and on in about year two. And as Anand said, you know, great meeting. We really enjoy both the academic part of it uh, and the collegiality of it. And uh, thank OrthoBullets for hosting us tonight. Yeah, we do thank OrthoBullets. And uh, we're going to try and go through a, a case this evening that we all, that I selected from my registry in regards to a 62 year old male who presents with right shoulder pain. History of present illness, this gentleman's a laborer. It's his dominant arm. He's had long-standing severe right shoulder pain. And over the past few years, he's had marked decrease in function, decreased range of motion, daily pain, and he has failed all considerable conservative care to include multiple glenohumeral injections of corticosteroid, non-steroidals, and physical therapy. He's on his way towards the end of his career as a laborer, and he's looking for something from pain relief and function in regards to his right shoulder condition. Hey, Jack, can I interrupt you? So, you know, sure. we, we all talk would, about the role of physical therapy the for, for arthritis. And, you know, I just wonder, like, how often each person institutes it. I know, you know, if the person's arthritis is very mild, I may consider it. But beyond that, I tell them to, to try to avoid it. It seems to exasperate their pain. But the problem is a lot of the insurance companies, as part of, part of a prerequisite for being able to be pre-surgery for surgery, they'll look at their physical therapy. So I just wanted to get the panelists' thoughts on that. And that's a great point, Joe, because I think some patients, it's counterproductive. You know, when they have severe stiffness in this, this really kind of an ankylosed shoulder, trying to have a therapist crank on their arm, I think is very difficult. I think sometimes you can get away with the insurance compliance by 
issuing kind of a home program and teach them some gentle stretching that, to keep as much as possible. But yeah, I think sometimes it's uh, counterproductive. Yeah, I think for me, if they're end-stage arthritis and they're super stiff, I think it, it makes them worse. It's like trying to move an immovable object. Uh, I do think, you know, there, there's a role for it in that patient that has some arthritis, some stiffness where you think they can get a little bit of motion back, and a little bit of function, but it's got to be pretty early on, or I think in general, it makes them worse. So in a referral practice like you all have, sometimes these patients come to you with multiple bouts of physical therapy prescribed by their primary care physician or other practitioners. Uh, when I have somebody that has significant arthritis, unlike the hip and knee or the lumbar spine, I find that physical therapy can kind of aggravate them and exacerbate their condition. But if they're mild to moderate or if the patient truly feels that they can benefit from some gentle therapy to maintain their motion and consider some deltoid and periscopic strengthening. I do consider it, but I try not to make them push their boundaries to kind of have them flare up because I do feel that it is counterproductive. But unfortunately, as, uh, as Joe was stating, sometimes these cases are being denied due to the lack of a pre-surgical physical therapy being ordered. Can I get uh, some responses on who uses cortisone versus PRP versus some type of hyaluronic acid? Brent, how about you? So I'll use cortisone. I don't use any of the other orthobiologics. And if I'm thinking about an anatomic arthroplasty, I don't like to inject them certainly more than twice, ideally not more than once. You know, I think there's pretty good data out there now that you want to wait at least three months before you do an arthroplasty. If you do, if you do, or you or somebody else injects them, I don't know where everybody else stands on that as well. I'm very similar to you, Brent. I would say maybe in my real elderly debilitated population, I'm a little more lenient than I am in my younger population. But, you know, in a 62-year-old, you know, it's just a matter of time, one or two years. I don't know what I'm really buying them other than maybe a, a complication that's really hard to eradicate or a soft tissue problem. That'll be a problem. So for me, I try to avoid them. I may do them once a year, and I won't do more than one or two most. Yep. A similar elderly patients, I tend to give a few more. I don't use a PRP. I've used Visco in the past. I've lied and stated they had knee arthritis, and I've used it. I haven't had great success. The data out there doesn't show great success with Visco in the shoulder. Uh, there's some coming after, they're coming after you. The Visco police. I'll be practicing in Haiti soon. So, uh, as far as PRP, there's been some recent data in the knee, uh, not so much in the shoulder that's positive, with uh, I guess with less problematic issues in regards to corticosteroid, but I'm very similar to the rest of the panel. Uh, in regards to uh, utilizing cortisone. Uh, so we can go on to the next slide if you guys want. His uh, physical examination shows that he's fairly stiff. He's never had any previous surgery. He can actively forward flex to 80. He can externally rotate to five and internal rotation is to the sacrum. And passive range of motion is consistent with his active range of motion with a fairly stiff shoulder. And there's no other neurologic issues or referred pain from the cervical spine that would be of concern. Any questions from the panel? Anything about this case that maybe steers you one way or another or what your thought process is moving forward? I, mean, I just think that stiffness is key to document supine. The more stiffness you have, you know, you have to worry about the deformity in their glenoid and how much you're going to be able to get back for them if they've had capsule or if you surgery before. And then, you know, my question to you, is your exam good enough to determine their cuff, their cuff status, Joe? Um, no. So that I will tell you. Is that good? I said, no, it's not. 
uh, my exam is not good enough. And so I will tell you that we were just talking about this the other day with, with the fellow in the office. If they have a lot of deformity, I'm getting a CT scan. If they have mild deformity, then I am getting an MRI because I, I do think there's quite a bit of cuff disease that can sometimes burn you if you don't really appreciate it preoperatively. And I will say that I do lean towards reverse in situations where the cuff is atrophic, lots of tendinosis in, in the, in the uh, tissue that I worry about the healing or functioning for the patient. A stiff patient like this, if they're truly this stiff, that concerns me as far as what kind of range of motion I can get for them post-op. Joe, don't you find that the cuff, if you're in your 60s, 70s, you got a lot of arthritis that's been there for a while and you're stiff. Doesn't everybody's cuff look terrible on MRI? Even, I mean, I, I find it, it's not that helpful because I think they look much worse on the MRI actually a lot of times than when you're looking at it at surgery. In classic masses fashion, we continue to jump far ahead of where we need to be. Um, but, um, I think it's up to you to keep up. Well, you know, it's 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 hard damn work well, keeping up with people looking this pretty. So we'll, you know, I'll do my best. Uh, Brent, I'll take it, Brent, oh, you're going to get to imaging. I won't catch up. We'll so, well, no, so I, I mean, I, I, for me, I just don't think there's a lot of role for them. If, if they've got good external rotation strength, you know, they're, they're this stiff, the belly press test isn't going to be valid, but if you get the sense the belly press test is good, they've got good strength and abduction and they haven't had any cuff problems. You don't see calcification in the cuff. I don't find a whole lot of use in imaging it because I don't think it helps me too much. All right. So why don't we go to the, to the next slide? I find that, you know, stiffness is, it's important to designate stiffness from active motion to passive motion because you can get fooled and patients in their active motion. And when you get them on the table and actually lay your hands on them, stabilize their scapular thoracic articulation, they're actually much stiffer than you think. And when you see that they're that stiff in someone of this age, you know, to me, I'm thinking glenoid deformity. And that can affect moving forward what I do from an imaging perspective and or if they are going to go forward towards surgery, what we do from a surgical perspective. So I, I think pre-op yeah. exam is, is extremely important especially when it comes to stiffness from a passive range of motion standpoint. It does affect how I address the subscap on, on approach too, but we'll, we'll get to that too, I bet. We'll go to the next slide. So as we all know, patients will come to you from their primary doctor ordering an MRI over the weekend with shoulder pain, yet I can't get an MRI pre-certed for someone who felt 25 feet from a, from a roof to get an MRI with cuff weakness. But standard is always standard radiographs. And you know, Joe, what's your protocol in someone who comes in with shoulder pain, uh, who you think may be arthritic as far as what views do you get for a shoulder? We have a series of four x-rays that we get, AP and internal and external rotation. We get a scapular Y. And I, I really like looking at the scapular Y because it can really tell you a lot about dynamic subluxation posteriorly because that's typically a, a standing x-ray, obviously, and uh, an axillary view. So I, I look at both the axillary and the scapular Y to assess, you know, subluxation, severity of deformity of the glenoid for these patients. So those, those four views are typically what we get. So Brent, how good are your x-ray techs? It's kind of like ultrasound, you know, uh, kind of like your, your anesthesiologists in their blocks. Now, if you have a great x-ray tech and they do a great axillary or a great grashy, do you think that gives you enough information moving forward in lots of your patients? You know, I think for me, I everybody getting arthroplasty is going to get a CAT scan because I, I use proper planning for everybody at this point. And so if they're stiff, our guys don't do a great axillary, but I don't really care so much. Actually, the ones I'll push the text to get a good axillary 
are the guys that are starting to show some posterior wear and some posterior subluxation. They don't think they're ready for surgery yet. Then you kind of want to know how much bone are they wearing away in the back. So at least you can give them an honest discussion of what's going on. What about if you practice in Canada? It takes you a year to get a CAT scan on somebody. Can you go by your axillary with your with your technician? I mean, I think you can. I'll tell you, I trained with John Fenlon, you know, as old school as you can get. And I saw him get burned. Now, this is obviously in the days before posterior augments, but I saw him get burned several times, you know, where he, he didn't believe in CAT scans a lot of times. And we get in there and there'd be an axillary and there was way more deformity than you thought you had. So if it's my shoulder, I'm getting a CAT scan. So I think the, the patient ought to get a CAT scan. A, so, a, so further imaging is not the tool of the devil, right, Dr. Murphy? You know, I think for a non-deformed OA shoulder, you're probably pretty consistent with getting good axillary x-rays and good x-rays. But for any kind of deformity, I think you need pre-op planning with CAT scan. And I'm with Brent, I get a CAT scan on every patient. So, so on, on this patient, I'm going to go through the two films. I'm going to have you kind of just give me your input and, and what do you think of the pertinent findings in regards to this AP? And there's also an axillary. So, so Anand, what do you think about this AP? AP, complete uh, loss of joint space, uh, sclerosis. He's got a small inferior humeral osteophyte. A little hard to see the lateral acromion, but I think he's a little medialized as well, but no significant proximal migration. Chromiohumeral interval looks good. He's got good cortices, good bone stock. So nothing that you think from this AP that would make you think that he's got a lot of posterior wear or he's got a lot of you know bone loss. Just the medial, the subtle medialization will make me will make me think a little bit about posterior subluxation or erosion. The lateral border, the acromion compared to the greater tuberosity, or actually where the head sits compared to the coracoid. I, I like to use the coracoid as a reference point for myself and see kind of where the head sits. And I also look to see it in regards to rotation. If I have an AP or a grassy view, if I have problems with rotation of the head. I'm thinking there's probably more medialization and posterior subluxation than what shows on the imaging study. So those are kind of the things that I look like I look at on on, on the AP or crash views. And here's his uh, axillary adequate axillary on. And what do you think? No, um, you know, Dr. Matson talks about the truth view, where you can actually see kind of the posterior distal clavicle medial to the acromion, this kind of window. There is no truth in my office. So no truth. There is no truth. No truth. Um, so this is kind of a uh, a poor man's axillary view. But do you think you can get any? You can glean any information from this at all? Yeah, he's got post some posterior wear, some erosion, but it's you know it's kind of a quasi AP abducted arm AP. Joe, any any input on what you think about this axillary beyond you getting seven different studies: EMG, MRI, the C spine, shoulder, like you usually do. Um, I think it confirms what we saw in the first few, but it doesn't really help me with understanding his glenoid deformity that well. So, you know, there is that prominent osteophyte on the, on the tuberosity that you saw in the AP scene here as well, which makes me wonder about his superior cuff and health of it. But otherwise, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a good view. Okay. What would you do moving forward from an imaging perspective if this patient walked into your office just with these films? Right? I'd get a CAT scan. Okay. Um, CT only. CT only, no MRI. So with that physical examination finding, with these radiographs in a male CT scan only. Joe? So if I only had these two views and he's 62, I'm getting a CT 
But if I had four views in the office and the deformity wasn't that bad, I'd get an MRI because I'm interested in his cuff. And I, I do think that an anatomic arthroplasty, as opposed to in the past where we thought glenoid was the, was the main issue, I think cuff is a big issue. And if they don't have a good cuff, it's not going to last them 15 years. Okay. Yeah, so so I, I think understanding their cuff. And if they have a bad cuff in a 62-year-old laborer, I'm not as concerned as I used to be about doing a reverse shoulder arthroplasty as the outcomes have, have been better and better. So uh, no acromiohumeral narrowing, inferior humeral head osteophyte, radiographic findings of, st- of primary osteoarthritis, as we know, you know, five to 10% may be possibility of full thickness cuff disease, no weakness on examination, but fairly stiff. You still think you'd get a, an MRI to assess his cuff to look for atrophy. Well, if I'm being deposed as, an, as a, as a, as a witness and you're, you're, you're the cross-examining attorney, I would have to say no at this point, but I'm sticking to my clinical guns and I'm going to say, I get an MRI in this situation, Jack. So, Hey, I, Joe, let, me, let me ask you a question. Do you do the same thing if it's a woman? And, and the reason I asked that is one of the things I found about with using planning software so frequently is that any of us can put a glenoid on a flat glenoid, I hope. But, you know, if you look at those glenoids, you know, the, the small women, there's a lot less margin for error than I think we think there is. And so I find even for non-deformed women, I find the CT and the planning to be very useful. So any benefit from that or you're, you'd rather have your MRI and see what the cuff looks like? Do you worry so, about that at all? So as opposed to, I think you and Anand, I probably plan about 30% of my cases, not 100%. So if it was a woman with, again, they don't typically have as much deformity as laboring men, but I probably getting an MRI more so than a CT scan. But I see your point, a uh, point well taken. I think there's less margin for error as far as the, the size and where you put your pin. We might be getting to this, but there's going to be a place here where you're going to discuss, well, it doesn't matter if you are doing reverse, you know, for this case or a lateralized reverse where planning may, may not be needed in mild, even moderate deformity, you know, versus if you're really going down the path of anatomic where you have to balance this glenoid, then I think you definitely need a CAT scan and perhaps an MRI, perhaps both. So, so on and for this case, you see this patient in the office, would you order a CT scan plus an MRI or just a CT scan? Um, if his strength, if I felt his strength was good, I would do just a CT scan. But since if this was the only films I had, this is one of the few cases where I'd have him come back with the CAT scan to discuss, you know, what the actual surgical decision is going to be. And that may be based on his deformity at 62 years old. Um, you can actually sometimes get the scans medial enough to look at the muscle belly to see if there's any atrophy of the cuff. That'll give you an idea as well. You know, some people tell the pay, they book them for both reverse and anatomic and make a introp decision on a, on a platform type of system. So, but for me, this 62 year old, I'm trying to go for as much anatomic as possible. And you wouldn't order an MRI. I did get a CT scan on him. He actually came with an MRI, no cuff tear, no significant atrophy of his posterior musculature and cuff was not thin. So this is his axial CT. Brent, you know, what do you think? I mean, there's some successive ones. You know, what's the first thing that jumps out to you with this CT scan? Yeah, I mean, he's got some significant posterior glenoid wear uh, and some subluxation. I mean, I'd I'd call this a B3 glenoid, I think. Okay, he calls it B3. What percentage, if you could bet uh, with your trained eyes, how much subluxation does he have? I'm going to ballpark him at somewhere between 60 and 75% maybe. 
on him? I would say even more. I mean, so if he's if he's centered, it's fifty percent. So if he's yeah. so normal yeah. subluxation for yeah. for the group is that it's fifty percent is going to be right. your normal subluxation angle. But if you take you know Friedman's axis and you kind of draw it, kind of runs almost through his the anterior aspect of his humeral head to his lesser. So maybe even eighty five percent or so. Joe, you agree? That's significant. Yeah. Okay. You can see the muscle bellies too. They they look good. That's the that's the infra or the terrier. Yeah. I don't know. Posterior cuff musculature really important to know how much atrophy is there is there because based upon Iannotti study, if there's a lot of posterior cuff muscle atrophy greater than three, even if the cuff's intact, they tend to do poorly with anatomic arthroplasty, even in younger patients. So the musculature looks pretty good, Pre Joe. Yeah. I think it looks pretty good. I mean, there's there's definitely some some signal there, posterior glenoid, that makes me wonder, you know, what's going on in there. But here's yeah. another sequential axillary CT. You guys agree? Continues to show pretty high subluxation angle posterior. Where the glenoid probably more of a B three, correct, as opposed to a two or even a C. It doesn't seem to be hypoplastic, correct? No. Okay. I mean, Joe, this is, or Jack, sorry, this is one where I think you get fooled if you go just off the amount of posterior subluxation because he's wearing medially enough that he's actually not subluxing as posteriorly as he is deformed because um, he's kind of going in and back instead of just, you know, with the B2s, they go back and then they sit in that defect. Yeah. Here, he's, he's actually going a little anterior as he keeps going in. So what do you think about this posterior osteophyte here? Does that affect you at all? Doesn't make a big difference to me. I mean, I, I think that's part of his deformity. Yep. Part of his deformity. Okay. So how important is it for you guys to categorize the glenoid via the Walsh classification? Does it matter? Does it help you with your planning, what you're going to do from a glenoid perspective, from a, from an actual surgical perspective? It's a data point, Jack. I think that just like everything's a data point, right? His age, his height, his range of motion, his comorbidities, his profession, his genetics, all those things are data points that help us make the decision. But I think we input all these data points. And as we get more experienced, just like these artificial intelligence programs, predictive modeling, we become that computer. And we, we end up, honestly, I think sometimes short selling ourselves for what complex decisions we've been trained to make through all these analyses that we've just made based on all the information you've just given us. And so I think it's a data point. And it's a helpful data point. But I, you know, again, I think even if we didn't have a classification system, we just looked at this and said, based on your experience, is this good, bad, or terrible? This is bordering on bad to terrible. It's tough. This this is the tough case, right? And you want to add it to your registry to kind of follow it. But like you were saying, Jack, all B3s are not all the same. All B2s are not the same. And, you know, there are some kind of guidelines on 80% subluxation, 30 degrees retroversion that they all should get a reverse. I think you have to be really cautious to kind of go down that road. Exactly. Kind of like used to be B2 glenoids, you know, do we augment them because there's too much that we can ream from the high side, you know, C's, what do we do with C's? You know, what, what do we do with B3s now? I, I don't think that there's a, something you can plug in and say, you have a B3, this is what you need to do. This, we have a C, this is what you need to do. It's as you know, they're all data points that can assist us with the overall a personality of the case. And if you look at this picture here, you tend to forget looking at the coracoid, you see, yeah, and Brett made a good point that he's actually medializing more rather than subluxing more posteriorly. When you look at his coracoid, you see where his coracoid sits, you can see how far medially he is, which can increase your 
complexity of the case from your clinical selection, your surgical exposure, uh, your interoperative decision-making, and your eventual range of motion and function post-operative. So if you choose operative management, what technique would you use? Rapid fire, Joe, what are you going to do with this case here? This is an arthroplasty if a person wants a surgery. Okay. What type of arthroplasty would you select? You know, at this point, I'm in between an anatomic and a reverse, and I'm in between it based on his motion and deformity. You know, How can you be in between? You got all the data now. I haven't met him. so yeah. And you're not going to tonight, so you got to make right. it. So that's why I don't operate on people I never meet. So, but I will tell you that if, if he's kind of a knucklehead, you said he's not a smoker, right? He's a, he's a hardworking, legitimate, good yeah. person who wants yeah. relief and function. This is one where there was deformity on the x-rays. I would have got a CT scan. I would have planned it, seen how much subluxation. I think if it's a really se- severe amount of correction, which this, I think will be, I'm leaning towards reverse because in my hand, in my hands, that's a more predictable operation than an augmented anatomic. What's your correction number, Joe, that you were saying if you were planning that you can't correct to? So if they're, if they're more than 80, 85 degrees subluxed and they're missing, it looks like probably a, a centimeter of, of bone, centimeter plus of bone medially, medially uh, eroded. I'm concerned about how much I can really correct with an augment and soft tissue balance and really still get, give them meaningful rotation that they're going to be happy with. He also, I would imagine his primary mover here is, is pain relief. So with a reverse or an anatomic, he's going to get pain relief. With a reverse, I'm pretty sure he can get pretty good function. With an anatomic, I'm not positive based on his deformity, quality of his tissue, and his stiffness. As always with the alphas in the room, Murthy and Abood and Brent, it's kind of jumped the gun a little bit. We, we will discuss this moving forward. As the moderator, I'm going to kind of tame the, the tigers in the room. So we have, you know, great well, stuff. He pushed me. I mean, listen, he, he started it, all well, right? He, That's well, how my kids do well, it. Well, he started <laughs> it, but I'm going to close the deal. So, <laughs> so Brent, you know, if you choose operative management, obviously you're probably going to lean towards an arthroplasty, correct? Yeah, I'm going to do an arthroplasty. Do you want me to stop there or you want me to keep going? No, I mean, you can say you don't have to get intricate in in regards to what you're going to select, but what are you leaning towards? So, I mean, I I agree with what Joe said. In my hands, most reverse is definitely more predictable here. So it really depends on how active the guy is. You know, if if he's a laborer, he wants to go back to work, you know, even if he retires, if he likes, you know, working around his house, you know, working in his yard, then I'm probably going to put in a reverse, excuse me, put in an anatomic. I'll, I'll do something, you know, stemless so that if it fails, it's an easy conversion to a reverse and give him a shot at that. Um, if he's 62 and he's a little, little beefy, he likes to sit on the couch a lot. And, you know, all he wants to be able to do is, you know, go to an Eagles game. Then, uh, you know, I think a reverse is definitely more predictable for sure. And I think if he's 72, in my mind, there's no question at this point he's getting well, well, well being a commodes fan or a commander's fan like you are now you've never been to an eagles game it gets pretty rough there so you better be strong going to an eagles game when you get you're trying to throw people down you know lincoln financial so you don't think it's you know being a couch potato eating cheesesteaks uh, going to an eagles game so on what are you what are you going to select uh i'm gonna plan a, hopefully an anatomic with some type of correction on the glenoid and perhaps an augment to get to at least minus 10. Okay, so let's uh, see what everyone selected on question number five. So 87% selected arthroplasty, 3% chose arthroscopic debridement, 
3% selected the CAM procedure, but a majority of the crew selected arthroplasty. And uh, that makes me feel good because I think that this is the, an arthroplasty of some sort is the best procedure for this patient to obtain the goals that he requested, which was pain relief and function moving forward with his x-rays and his pre-op range of motion. Any input from the, from the crew? No, this makes sense. Makes yeah. sense. That's what I would have expected. Good. The outliers we won't discuss, but arthroplasty, I think, is the, the appropriate procedure for this individual. So looks like a consensus. Unusual for us to have consensus, but it looks like a consensus. All right. So how about we move forward to the next question? If you choose arthroplasty, which procedure would you perform? Hemi, Riemann run, TSA, RSA. So I think Joe was kind of foofy-foofy in between. Brent is more so RSA, but if the guy wants to go out there and, and bench press, he's thinking TSA. And Anand stated that with this examination, he's going to go more so with an anatomic with some type of glenoid correction, correct? Exactly. I, I was more towards TSA than RSA, but... All right. Well, then maybe, I stand corrected. Maybe uh, a choice that's not on there is uh, a different bearing surface like pyrocarbon. Yeah, I don't know if uh, pyrocarbon is FDA approved. And e even if pyrocarbon was FDA approved, would you guys consider pyrocarbon or alternate bearing surface with someone with glenoid disease like this and a pre-op exam like this? Would you consider pyrocarbon more for the younger so, patient? I, I guess it all depends on managing expectations. If their expectation is they want better range of motion and they'll be happy with good pain relief, but maybe not 90% pain relief, a hemi, whether it be a pyrocarbon or chrome cobalt still has a role for, for these patients. And it gets you potentially to mitigate some of the, the problem with, with the glenoid correction here. But, I, think, um, I think at 45, maybe, but at 62, I would think that hemi or alternate bearing hemi arthroplasty probably would not be the best for this patient, but it, but it is within the differential. Yeah. I mean, Joe, yeah. I think there's something you touched on earlier. I actually don't think it's the glenoid that fails in these folks. I think it's a lot of times the cuff that fails in them. And so, uh, you know, I think 10 years down the road, if he's going to fail, it's not because his glenoid gets loose. It's because his cuff fails and then his glenoid gets loose. So I'm not sure you gain anything by doing a hemi. You might as well give him all the pain relief and, and actually you can probably balance him better with plastic in there to make up some of that deformity than you can just by doing the hemi. Good point. So I guess we're going to see what most people selected. So what do you think most people are going to select here, Anand? Um, I think anatomic. I'm going to go with anatomic. You're a Svengali. Okay. You're, you're gonna oh, I'm, I'm going to, I haven't looked at these, but I'm going to say that I? I think that the polling is going to show more RSA than we expect. I think the TSA will still be anatomic. TSA will still win, but there'll be a, probably a close second to RSA. What do you think? What's your number? What's your number, Joe? I'm going to say, I'm going to say anatomic is going to be about 40. Reverse is going to be about 30. Riemann run are going to be about somewhere in the 15s. So is DraftKings supporting masses uh, due to your <laughs> incredible abilities? Barstool. Barstool. Okay. We have Barstool on board. Right. I mean, uh, exact reason why I selected this case, I think, is because it's kind of cleaner. Is this going to be a consensus, a coin flip, or a controversy, Jack? That's why it's coin flips and controversy. I, I, I think it's going to be uh, a controversy. Okay. I'll go one further with Joe. I think that whatever the number that says RSA here is, is actually lower than the number of people that would do it. Meaning I think if you actually put this patient in somebody's office, I think 60 or 70% of people are doing a reverse 
They just don't want to say it. Yeah, there's closet RSA people. They think they're lying. It's true okay. because it's easier to do. It's okay, got more uh, lenient. It's more. It's got more freedom. That's why they end up in Baltimore, right on it. All roads. Shit. Fifty-seven percent anatomic, thirty percent wow. RSA, and three percent Hemi. So three percent Hemi. Be interesting to see because I know that ortho bullets is pretty much worldwide. Correct. Yes. What percentage? Of the Arthur of the Hemi came from inside the U.S. or outside the U.S. and as far as yeah, age group, good question. No. Yeah, as far as so age group, like, who's selecting reverse now? Is it the the uh, later generation surgeon, uh, or is it the the younger generation surgeon that has trained more so with RSA until they get better results? So I think that I think this is you know once again a, a controversy. But Joe, good call, 50 percent. I, I think truly, if you got people. To get this guy in their office, if they noted his stiffness, I think more would have Good gone. Call. Joe was like twenty percent off. What are you talking about? <laughs> hey, Anand, I like the fact that he was giving me credit. Why are you got to rain in my parade? <laughs> I know he's just giving you blind credit. I was he's giving you blind credit. I was way, way off. off. I don't even think it's a controversy. It's a consensus. <laughs> right. It's fifty-seven percent. I mean, that's pretty good in orthopedics. I'm surprised it's that high. So you guys I'm think surprised. five years from now those numbers will be flipped? I think they're flipped now. I just think these people are answering what they think should be answered in a textbook versus what they really do. Yeah, I think some you're right. Bias, right? There's some we're watching some sociology bias, but 500 is a good sample size. 510 is a good sample size. Yeah, That's a lot. I do mean, you, do you guys think you know, geography of the surgeons makes a difference in regards to what they select? Sure. Where they train, geography, what's what they available. Have yep. All right. So let's go to the next question. If you choose anatomic total shoulder arthroplasty, how would you manage the glenoid version? So Joe, if you could gauge based upon those CT scan images with your incredible mind and vision, you know, what percentage subluxation do you think he has? What percentage of uh, retroversion of the glenoid do you think he has? And how much do you accept in regards to correction in doing an anatomic total shoulder arthroplasty in regards to your glenoid? Yeah, I think our, our um, analysis of subluxation was around 80, 85%. I think that's about right. And I think his retroversion is probably about 35%. I don't, I don't know if you planned this one or not. And I think that if you can correct him back to 10 to 12 degrees, that's great. You know, I think that this will probably be, a, if I'm doing an anatomic on this, it'll be a combination of a, a little bit of high side reading and, and an augment to kind of get a mix of, of the two, to be honest. I, I'm not a huge max augment size person because I worry that I overstuffed the joint and they're going to end up stiff, but centered. So It'll probably limited correction, smaller augment. So, so Brent, you know, I know, you, you know, you like doing RSAs, but if you were to do glenoids in, in tough cases like this, are you with, with a B3, are you uh, leave him where he lies or are you partial correction and try to get them maybe to 20 degrees? Or do you try to go full centimeter of, of a high side reaming and get them flat? This is where I think the pre-op planning is key. So for me, it's, I'm, I'm going to play with that and get them. I'm, I'm going to get them back as close to 10 as I can. I mean, I'm with Joe. I think the largest augment seen was time they're about 35 degrees, I think, are too big. So I, I won't go above the, the middle one, the 25. And so I'm going to get them as close to 10 degrees as I can with that 25 degree augment, you know, so I'll take some of the bone down in the front on the preparative plan and then 
you know, sometimes you've got to go, you can, you got to put it closer to 12 or 15 if you have to, to get enough seating of the implant, but as, as close to, to 10 as I can get with that medium implant. But I think you got to have the preparative planning software to do it. And for me, if patient specific guide as well. So Greg, did, did you use, did you use software on this? Did you plan this? No, I did not. That's old school. No, oh, he didn't plan it. So you old just school. said, I'm doing anatomic and I'm doing it. It's the Indian, not the arrow. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so it doesn't matter. I mean, do you have to get to 10? Do you have to get to 10 degrees? I mean, what's the data say about, you know, can, can you, can you partially correct and leave it at 20? You know, do you, when you see the amount of medialization he has, you get a remum of a fair amount. And if your remum, if your high side remum of a fair amount, you're, you're getting into subchondral bone and you could cause a problem with your glenoid plate and eventual loosening of your implant. So does, does that concern you? Uh, what amount of retroversions do you guys stop and, and consider you know, bone graft versus RSA with augment on it? You know, th these are things that you do a lot of research on that really interest you. So for disclosure, I would use a glenoid that I helped design because I want to, like you said, I want to correct to minus 10, minus 12. Uh, I would use the largest component that can be placed on lay or recessed. If I recess it anteriorly at the larger size, I can correct 15 degrees. We've studied that in the lab, so I can get them from minus 25 to minus 10. And it's also a conforming glenoid, so it'll kind of capture the humerus. Uh, so I'm not worried as much about subluxation and not worried as much in a B3, like Brent said, as we were, were, have decreased subluxation anyway. Uh, and I would try that and I would plan that. Do you have a level of retroversion that you say, that's enough for me, I'm selecting something different? Yeah. If I get to 30 degrees on a B2 with subluxation 80, 90%, then I'll probably go in a patient over 60, I'm going to think about reverse. And an Joe? Augmented reverse. Yeah, very, very similar. And, uh, you know, I have looked at your x-rays for this and, you know, we're going to look at that in a second, but I will say that. I would have probably leaned more towards the RSA. So you can take my foo-foo away. I actually would say I would have done an RSA. Brent, anything for you to add? Subtract? No, I, mean, I think I agree with what Anand said. I mean, and, and I think you can see it pretty nicely if you're, you're sitting there in the software, you can flip back and forth. But to me, it's if I max everything out and I'm not seeing 85 or 90% support for the glenoid, then I'm thinking it's time to switch to reverse. I, I, think, what, I think that planning software has really, really helped. I think, you know, people who are high volume surgeons who have a great system, who have uh, academic support or x-ray colleagues that are very helpful in assisting them in incorporating their, their planning software in their daily practice, you tend to take, take for granted what it's like practicing in the community where you may have patients who you know, don't have access to special CT scanners. They can't go to certain places. The imaging imaging places aren't able to do uh, the planning as you would like. So it's not like we refuse to do planning software, but sometimes in the community, it's not as easy as incorporating it into your practice. It's a barrier to entry. So yep. part of the reason That's I That's why you should refer all your patients, Jack, down the street to me. Thank you. Yes. Just yes. kidding, Jack. Just kidding. I appreciate that. <laughs> I just get them angry. Don't get them angry. They have come back sick and lame, and and, and they like you know the, the bums in the bar. They sing my praises, so they love that. The sheiks and all the the aristocrats can go to you. 
my lovely people stay, stay with me. So, but also, like I said, I think planning software is, is fantastic, but sometimes it's not always as easy to incorporate in your practice in the community. So sometimes there are barriers that prevent you from using it, not because of ignorance or because of resistance to use. But I think that it's, uh, it's, it's really pretty amazing. It's, a, it's, a, it's an extra step. It's more work. For, for awesome. It's more work. And so I think that, you know, as data has come out to show that it, it does improve in surgical precision, it's been more widely adopted, but, you know, it's been slower to be adopted than I think industry would like, partly because the added workload and who's going to take that up, your resident, your fellow, they change every eight weeks and you got to teach the same person the same thing again. And that gets a little tedious. I was going to say, I mean, I think it's important, you know, some of the systems are easier to use and, you know, with the patient flow than others. Um, and I mean, you can bill for it. So, you know, if that's an issue, you can bill for your time for doing it. To me, if, again, if it's my shoulder, I want it planned. So um, can you, can you talk planned. about that, Brent? I'm uh, not as familiar with that as maybe you are. Well, I mean, so with the new, with the new E&M codes, you can bill for extra time on the day of the patient visit. So you can bill for it that way. Or if you plan on a different day, uh, there is a code, and I don't know it off the top of my head, but basically incorporates non-face-to-face work for uh, the, the first hour, and then there's another one, God forbid, I don't know why you use it if you went beyond an hour um, that you can use for it. So we've had pretty good success with Medicare patients, you know, billing for that, and, you know, you get a couple hundred dollars. Very interesting. So Joe, uh, basically, if you twisted his arm, he might do a combination of above, but really kind of what shows an RSA, Correct. Uh, on in combination of above, correct. So a little bit of reaming, a little bit of augmented glenoid, correct, or or some type of augment, correct. Right. And I mean, is anybody ever using augmented glenoid without doing at least a little bit of high side reaming? I mean, I can't think of a time when I ever put in an augment and didn't ream down the the high side at least a little right. bit. I think there's a combination of 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 everything, and not and you can use a non augmented glenoid as an augment. Correct. Correct. All right. So yeah, let's, but, I mean, that's a very viable option, but I think to be clear that we don't have great data on that yet to show two year clinical outcomes and how they're going to do, but yes, that is an option. Oh, great. So let's see what everyone selected here. So seven would not choose TSA, 17% high side reaming, 37% augmented, 7% glenoid bone graft, 17% combination, 12% best if I don't vote. So Joe. So that was Joe. That's where, yeah, that's where Joe, Joe voted. Best if I don't vote. What do you guys think about that? I think it's pretty Our similar to what we're saying right now. Right? I mean, I think, I think we've been kind of talking about this back and forth combination of above. I think bone grafting is, is kind of falling out of vogue. I mean, Greg Nicholson has talked about that a lot and he's done it well. I think it's not as easily reproducible as an augment, but um, you know, I think it's kind of in keeping with what we just talked about. I, th- I think with the instrumentation we have now and with planning PSI guides, using an augmented poly um, is relatively straightforward. I mean, let's, let's briefly kind of go through some of the, some of the cited literature here. Uh, what do you guys think? Posterior glenoid TSA, eccentric reaming is superior to posterior augment. Emily Shung out of Stanford and Core. I haven't reviewed that article, but interesting. That's from 2015. I think that you know the Ionati and the Cleveland Clinic work has really shown that augmented glenoids, when placed properly, do have at least midterm results that are promising. Correct? 
Yeah. Yeah. That's probably the best paper out there. Yeah. So, um, Up to five the years. They're midterm three to five. Use of augments. Yeah. 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 I think it's, it's probably the most powerful paper out there. And, and that, and that, that comes from a, a group that kind of revolutionized, you know, three-dimensional evaluation of the glenoid from a pre-op standpoint, setting up protocols for, uh, for CT scans and planning software, uh, and also their, their augmented glenoid. So kind of the, the, the nascent articles and, and the nascent, you know, clinical work and, 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 and lab work and looking at the C, you know, the CT scan glenoid and the augmented glenoid itself. So it does show that it does have good midterm results at this present time from an augmented standpoint. Any comments, Brent, in regards to the literature out there? No, I mean, I think the Cleveland Clinic stuff shows it it works. At least, I think it, it's certainly more technical than a reverse. Um, it's much easier than it used to be, but it's harder than a reverse. And, and so, you know, I don't know if you can totally take that Cleveland Clinic literature and extrapolate it across all, all hands. Correct. I, mean, I think, you know, something that I always remembered from, from some of those lectures are that yeah, you can you can put an augment, you can high side ream, but if you have if you have a male that's stiff, they have poor range of motion and poor posterior cuff musculature, they're going to have poor outcomes. So, I think you know the gestalt or, or the or the personality of the patient really can dictate you you know beyond the three dimensional planning of. Huh. The, of the Where'd you hear that? <laughs> don't forget lip. it's a soft tissue operation above all else and you can put in whatever you can put in whatever kind of augment that or came out of your mouth after a couple of uh tequilas so all right how about we go to the uh to the next question sound good yeah so if you choose anatomic total shoulder what type of humeral stem and or head would you use i mean it doesn't really matter so Obviously, let's say you did select anatomic here, Joe, uh, Professor Joe. What would you, in this case, what would, be, what would be your preferred humeral implant? Well, I mean, I think if I was going to do an anatomic in this case, I would use a stemless if I, if I could, and I could balance the soft tissues well. Because, you know, even though oftentimes some stemmed implants are pretty easy to take out, some can be pretty challenging and cause proximal bone loss, which is, you know, obviously detrimental to the patient, their outcome and the morbidity of the operation. So if I can use a stemless on a patient, especially a 62 year old, I will use a stemless. Brent, if what do you think? A short stem. I almost never use a standard stem anymore uh, for an anatomic. Yeah. I mean, so for me in, in my practice, if you're not healthy enough and don't have good enough bone to get a stemless implant, you need a reverse. Um, I mean, I, I just, I, I think that, you know, if your bone's that soft, I probably ought to be doing a reverse anyway. So all, all anatomics from are stemless and it's a little bit like a get out of jail free card, right? So we're, we're debating back and forth. You know, I think certainly you could do anatomic here. You could do reverse worst case scenario, your anatomic fails. I think if it's a stemless implant, um, you know, with a peg glenoid component, that's as close to a primary reverse and a revision situation as you can get. So I don't think, you know, I think it's worth giving the guy the shot. You know, if you start putting in stems, uh, you know, or, or um, keeled glenoids becomes a different issue if they fail. So uh, to me, it's, it's all stemless. So, so in this case, Brent, and I'm going to kind of pose a question to you, posterior subluxation, internal rotation contracture, Medialization of, his glen medialization of his glenoid, 
you do your soft tissue work on him, you, you put your stemless implant in, let's say he's still subluxing posteriorly, is your stemless implant able to be, are you able to eccentricity, put some eccentricity on it and maybe tighten up your shoulder a little bit, or do you need to use a stem? Do you, you want to go possibly with the I stem? I think there's only one FDA, I think there's only one that's approved for that, right? Uh, of the stemless. So I think if you're using a stemless anatomic, by definition, you have to use a, a centered uh, humeral head. Well, it's centered, but it's centered to wherever you put it. So it's something I to think yeah. about. You know, I, I can't say intraoperatively I ever end up dialing the head. I generally don't change the version of the head to try and fix subluxation. I might increase the size of it a little bit, but I don't find it. Then they tear their cuff and they end up in Baltimore, which is fine. So what, what do you think about that thought process? You have a guy who's- I think you have, to, you have to be ready if you've, hopefully you've, you've corrected everything with your augmentation and your preparation on the glenoid side. But if you do still have posterior subluxation of your humerus, you know, then you have to go to your techniques to correct posterior subluxation, whether that's posterior capsulorophy, going to a larger head, which means you could affect your subscap or eccentrically dialing your humeral head, which uh, Matson has shown has worked as well with not any effect on your subscap. So, but you have to know your system. Like Joe said, you have to have a system where you can use uh, an eccentric head um, on your stemless. And there is really, or use, or use a stem, or use yeah, a stemmed, there is really uh, only stem. one until a few months ago, there were, or under a year ago, there was no stemless system that allowed eccentricity. Uh, so you gotta, you gotta be really on with your stemless technique. Once again, it's the Indian, not the arrow. The surgeon is the method, but if you maybe aren't right on with your cut, maybe you're not right on with your technique. There's nothing wrong with going with the stem if you have issues to make sure that you get it right. right. But I mean, I, ideally, so in, in this circumstance, now I'll, I'll pose a question to you. What, what humeral implant ideally would you like to use for this, for this use, case? I would use stemless. Okay. So once again, you're going to put a stem and keep it short. Yes. Yeah. And, and the reason for that is, is, you know, there's been lots of you know, biomechanical studies, Athwal study, showing, you know, hoop stresses uh, in regards to, you know, standard stem, short stem and stemless. I, I think Joe believes that, you know, going stemless actually preserves the blood supply to the metaphysis, which can assist you in, in your subscap repair and your subscap healing. Some people believe that there's less pain with, with stemless techniques. Also being a fourth generation technique, it allows you to utilize it in deformity cases and get, you know, your implant in, whereas before you have 108 millimeter stem, 120 millimeter stem, sometimes that prevents you from putting your, your, your implant properly. And in revision situations, it's, it's difficult, but there's also other reasons that stemless or short stems have benefited the humeral side in, in, in anatomic orthoplasty in regards to uh, subsidence, calcar resorption, and so on and so forth. How about we go through the, the poll? Sound good, guys? Sure. What are the yeah. answers? So we got four wouldn't choose TSA. So 13% long stem, almost 50% short stem, 16% stemless resurfacing humeral head, similar to stemless pyrocarbon, 1%, maybe they're from Australia, and a convertible stem, 6%. It's kind of a tough question because a lot of the short stems are convertible. So. Yeah, I mean, so so as I was going to say, you know, a few years ago, 
all the rage was the convertible stem. But is there truly a convertible stem nowadays? Do you believe in convertible stems? I mean, obviously, if you're doing the case, you have somebody that's 50, you know, you're going to be in practice maybe for 20 more years. But, you know, on in five years, you get a, you get a convertible to, to reverse due to his technical uh, incapabilities. Is there truly, you know, does it really matter in regards to convertibility in your own hands as opposed to somebody coming from an outside hospital with a stem? Obviously, you'll say when you're giving your lectures, hey, if you're going to use a stem, make sure it's convertible. You know, I think if you look back, Jack, I mean, 10, 12 years ago, a platform stem, the diaphyseal platform stem is all the rage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? that's, that's kind of what I mean. But yeah. more and more companies have gone away from that. If anything, they have a platform that's metaphyseal with some sort of design changes that have allowed them to make it more metaphyseal. But yeah. oftentimes, like you're alluding to, the operation is being revised because it wasn't potentially done right. So you're not only just revising the, the glenoid side, you're going to have to revise the entire humeral side. So, you know, I guess in an ideal world, yes, if, if you if the operation was done well, they had a cuff failure, and you did an anatomic and you used a convertible stem. Well, yeah, you saved the patient and yourself a lot of work and time and morbidity by just popping a, a glenosphere on there and, and, and putting in your shell. But that doesn't work out too, too often. So, Brett, what do you think about this, this coin flip controversy? What do you think about the OrthoBullets crew and, and their, uh, their answering the 47% short stem? Why do you yeah, think? I don't think it matters that much. You know, some of those short stems, there's not a lot of difference from the real short stems in this, the stemless at this point. I think, as Joe said, when the idea of platform stem came out and you know, they were all stack on top stems, that didn't really work, right? Because if you if you did the anatomic right, you were going to be overstuffed if by the time you converted it to reverse. Now you have inlay convertible stems, uh, or you have short stem. Either one of them is is pretty easy to revise. So I, because, I don't think it matters as long as it's not a long stem going halfway down the humerus. Yeah, I mean, there's me. no question. You know, if you have to do an osteotomy to take out a stem, that there's a lot of morbidity associated with that, and that reverse is never going to do as well as your primary reverse. I mean, for, for me, knowing what the trend has been in regards to literature and kind of, kind of, you know, talking to other surgeons out there, I would have thought this would have been flipped, that it'd be much more stemless as opposed to short stem. So I'm well, a little if, you, if you talk to industry, industry says that their use of stemless is like 60, 70% of yeah, their. So their yeah, I'm surprised sales. in Europe. I mean, Stemless is kind of the standard. I know that in, in the U.S., I think stemless is lagging behind due to cost and possibly from health systems being resistant to allowing them in your, in your system due to cost. Uh, and, and Anna, you can kind of talk on that. But I, I, would have, I would have assumed that this would have been flipped, just kind of, just kind of figuring out you know, what the masses talked about, and hopefully they'll come to masses. And discuss. Oh, that was that was well. That was that was tactful. I like that. I like that. Well, I have a lot of tact. That's what you're known for, Jack. Yes, that's what you're known for. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, what do you think, Adam? I mean, you, I mean, you're you're big in MedStar. You, you're you're very involved in. Well, I think the forward stem stemless issue is, like you said, I mean, a lot of places it's an access issue. I think they're available, but getting them into your system is probably what's delaying the eventual move to mostly stemless. Because I think you talk to the high volume. Shoulder surgeons, I'll tell you that stemless is their is their number one go-to. I, I think I was at a it might have been an ASCS meeting about two years ago, 
it was just when Stemless started getting some steam and they pulled the, the group in regards to if cost wasn't an issue, what would be your preferred implant all being equal as far as like the form you saw and so forth. And almost 95% stated that Stemless was going to be their, their implant of choice. I just thought I would have seen something different. But then again, I, I think do what's good in your hands, but a long stem diaphyseal filling implant is a bear if you have to revise it. Let's see what you do on the Jack. system too. I mean, you you know, I, I, I go back to when I used to use a long stem, I had no financial conflict with the Pew. Uh, I used to use the, the Pew Global AP and Global Advantage long stems. I've revised some of those in the past. They're, they're pretty easy to take out. Some of the other systems, um, they're proximal porous coating, yeah. proximal two-thirds porous coating. It's just they're, they're put in like hips, line the line, put in like hips. Right. Yeah. Right. I understand. A bad day in the OR. So let's go to let's go to the next. So so here we are intraoperatively. I did a anatomic shoulder orthoplasty. I did a inlay glenoid with some anterior correction. Hey, hey Jack, before you talk about that, I look at this picture and I go, that's a great exposure. It doesn't look that deformed in this picture. You know, how'd you get here? I sure. came up with this to him. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, your hands were sewed on backwards. So I had to show you how to do it. Uh, so for me, your standard, you know, delta pectoral approach, I position the patients. I don't use a special table or arm positioner. Uh, I also trained under John Fenlon. I use an old school, cheap Mayo stand that's adjustable that allows me to move the arm in abduction. I tilt the, the you know, in patients with, you know, bad deformity, I'll tend to tilt the patient to the, to the left or to the right based upon the shoulder that I'm working on to give me better access. I do release the superior one centimeter, the pectoralis, good subacromial, subdeltoid, and subcoracoid releases. I did a, a small lesser tuberosity osteotomy for this patient. I'm very diligent in regards to my releases, uh, subscap release. I do a capsulectomy. I do an anterior capsulectomy. I do release the infraglenoid tubercle. In these patients, I do not release posteriorly in these anatomic shoulder orthoplasties. But, you know, diligence in, in regards to release, removal of all the osteophytes getting to the anatomic neck. I free cut the humeral head so that I have my anatomic cut right to the cuff edge. I go maybe a few millimeters above the teres minor insertion. I use a Colbell for my lesser tuberosity osteotomy. And then once I've done my, my cut, I take out the deep retractors and I put the arm on the Mayo stand. And then I put my retractors in with no further deep retractors, which I feel is assists in, in exposure. Make sure I have maximum paralysis uh, for these patients. I tend to start off with a, a Facuda, Postero, and Fearly. I then put a small curved sharp Mayo, Postero, Superly. I then do my releases around the subscap in my capsulectomy. And I put in uh, anterior, uh, curved anterior retractor. Uh, anteriorly along the glenoid with the arm on a mayo in abduction, and I will actually move my lights so that I'm looking straight in on the glenoid, and I'm actually looking straight in on the glenoid when I evaluate my glenoid version. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, my releases for any glenoid exposure. Was This guy looks reasonably muscular. Uh, do you use any paralytic? Yes. I, I do not do any preoperative blocks, largely due to the work 
that you did, Joe. Uh, and also I had a few patients, a few thin females uh, who were very tight that had actually complete paralysis after shoulder arthroplasty. So I eliminated blocks. I do no blocks pre-op. I get complete paralysis. I do use TXA to prevent blood loss uh, intraoperatively and postoperatively. Joe, do you think you can make subtle corrections for stability on the humeral side? Like Jack said, I traditionally on, a, on an A or, a, or not too oh, so, deformed. So a, a not, sorry, I'll make no, a no. cut along the cuff, but do you think maybe putting in a less version on your cut can help you with stability? Yeah, I think if you, if you under retrovert them, you're less likely to have that concern about subluxation, you know, postoperatively. Yeah, I think, yes, I think that's a, I definitely don't want to over retrovert them, that's for sure. So for me, depending upon what facility that I work at, uh, one facility I have residents, one facility I don't. And a lot of times it's just me and one assistant. A couple of things that I do to assist me in my exposure is once again, I don't use a spider arm holder. I feel that it's difficult to in stiff shoulders to really get rotation, to really get adduction of the arm, to get the capsule off. I do release in almost all patients the superior aspect of the lesser tube, the, uh, the uh, latissimus, especially in stiff patients and thick patients. I find that it really helps me with exposure, especially in patients with large inferior humeral head osteophytes. I, I go in with Ron Jors with curved osteotomes, and I make sure that I get all the way posteriorly all the osteophytes as much as I can, and a release with a, a needle tip bobe of all those capsular structures, taking care to avoid my neurovascular structures to get good exposure of, of my humeral head so as I can identify my anatomic neck for my, for my osteotomy. And I find that really, I mean, I'll cut once, twice, three times if I think I haven't done an adequate cut to make sure that I get a good cut, which also assists me in my exposure and, and later soft tissue uh, balancing of the shoulder. And, I, and I'll readjust my retractors as I feel necessary. And, and I find that, you know, it's pretty reproducible for me. Obviously, sometimes it takes me a little bit longer if I'm not happy. If the guy's a you know, thick guy, muscular, deep hole, retroverted glenoid, you know, I'll just take my time with the Mayo stand. I'll make sure that I have my retractors in where I want it to be before I move to the next step. Any comments, questions? No, I mean, that's, that's all critical stuff. You know, that's stuff that uh, usually in your first five years of practice, you learn the hard way all those little subtle steps, but uh, they're all important. It's, it's hard to show here, but I think really looking at either when you're dissecting in a cadaver in real, real life, the coracohumeral ligament is often not released. And, you know, we like kind of show the fellows we're doing our releases and then we just save that for last. It's kind of posterior to the interval and under the supra, and you can take a knife or bovie and cut it and boom, your humerus will sublux a little bit more posteriorly. So that's another thing that's, uh, that's good to release. So Brett, any comments since you're always so kind to me, you always have good uh, words to say about me. I the only this, one. The, the, it looks like great exposure, but I mean, it's, it's an easy operation once you have the exposure done. Like my uncle always said, we are here on this earth to suffer. So I'm, I'm used to the suffering when I hang out with you guys. So I'll move to the next, next picture. So I, I used uh, the Pew Enhance. I used an inlay glenoid. Uh, inset inlay glenoid. This is my guide pin for my center hole. You measure it from A to P. You maximize your size from A to P. I selected it due to the fact that I'm not a big augment fan. I felt that it was a good implant to use where I could inset inlay it almost in an augment fashion and that I didn't have to do too much correction 
to get good fixation. I find that there's some good data out there in regards to the inset glenoid, in regards to a rim fixation with bone preservation. Uh, so I selected that implant, which has probably been out on the market for about 10 months or so, this particular implant. The inset glenoid's probably been out for, I'd say about seven to 10, probably 10 years now. Steve Gunther initially, and then there's been you no know, uh, shoulder innovations has come out with their own, their glenoid itself. There's not a lot of literature out there, but I felt that with this B3, with this younger male, that I didn't want to go with RSA. I didn't, I wasn't not very happy with my augments that I felt that this would be an appropriate implant to use for partial correction and good fixation of the glenoid, which could be bone preserving. So you typically, you know, drill your center hole and, and Anand, you can kind of talk about this since you are uh, conflicted, but one of the designing fathers of this, of this implant, you can tell me kind of what you think about where my pin is. Yeah. So, you know, there's guides to measure, you know, we're maximizing the A to P diameter. Uh, and like you said, for a B3, that's, that's retroverted, um, but doesn't have any significant biconcavity. If you essentially drill to the face, start drilling on the face and reaming, you'll end up recessing anteriorly, which then will give you essentially augmentation posteriorly. So it'll be in, it'll be recessed anteriorly and on lay or just have the ring fixation Correct. posteriorly. And that's kind of what it looked like when I so, had it. So, so Anand, I just want to, just for my own clarification, what's different from doing that versus high side reaming, right? Because when you high side ream, I mean, obviously it's not inset, right? It's onlay, not inlay. We're partially inlay, partially onlay, right? Yeah. But you're still kind of correcting. So are, are we kind of violating that cancellous bone or is it taking so little that it's not, not violating it? It doesn't violate it. It's thin enough. You know, there, it's hard to explain the thickness. There's a ring and then the thickness of the poly itself. And so if you inset or recess the anterior poly all the way or almost all the way, because of the thickness of the, of the poly and the ring for this side, I don't know if this is a large, um, it's a jack, large, you get 14.6 degrees of correction by doing it that way. So if you're eccentrically reaming, Typically, with a deformity that's posterior inferior, you're going to have still some uncovered. Usually, posterior superior will have some poly uncovered in the back or unsupported. But this glenoid, if you do it in this manner, the entire backside of the glenoid is supported still. So I don't know if a circle versus a versus a pair. If you guys can appreciate how it's kind of flush here, and it's actually flat in the back. So it's a little bit of augment, but it's actually flat. So it has complete peripheral implantation into the glenoid and fixation, which was, I thought, fairly impressive and fairly strong. Brent, any, any questions, comments? No, I mean, I guess I, I, I don't completely understand the inlay glenoid. I have to say when I've looked at it, it seems to me but like it takes away more time. bone as opposed to an onlay. And I, I don't understand the, the smaller sizes, the, you know, especially if you put it in a traditional sense, not as an augment like this, but it, it's raised up by about two millimeters, right? So you've got the, the glenoid on it. I think there's some pieces I'm missing, I guess. You've got the, the glenoid that's smaller than the size of your head. Your head's bearing on some on the, on the glenoid surface and some on the native bone, right? But they're two millimeters different. At least that's how I've understood it looking at the um, shoulder innovations one in the past. 
No, this is flush. This is not going to, I mean, it depends how you put it in. I mean, you can put it on. So completely. This, this is meant to be put in flush. No, this, this glenoid is meant to be, it's an on-lay glenoid. You can, you can recess it as much as you want. That's, oh, this is not an inlay. I, I thought this was an inlay. That's, that's completely technique dependent. You can, this is a on-lay, traditional on-lay ring with an anchor peg fixation. Got it. If you want to augment or pseudo augment, then you can recess it anteriorly because the reamer has no stop on it. So you can ream to where the peripheral bone is prepared just for the ring, which makes it an onlay, or you can begin to recess it as the reamer will continue to get buried. So this is the humeral component, the trial. And uh, I initially wanted to do a stemless. This system allows eccentricity. Uh, unfortunately, due to it being very new, the uh, people who devised this technique used up all the stemless that were available. So I was only allowed to use this. Only stemless, only stemmed for you. Yeah, which was, yes, nub. Uh, I was only allowed a short stem, little nub. So I did use a, a small stem. Uh, I When I do my lesser tuberosity osteotomies, I put a suture around the neck of the prosthesis and I pass that in horizontal fashion, horizontal mattress fashion uh, at the muscle tendon junction of the subscap to act like a ripstop to augment uh, my uh, repair. So that's interoperative photo of the stem, some proximal coat, uh, flutes into the stem itself. And this is some intraoperative video of the soft tissue tension. It's balanced subluxation, the posterior drawer kind of bounces right back with good tension. Joe, what do you think about that intraoperative uh, soft tissue balancing? So when you're doing an anatomic, what machinations do you go through in testing your shoulder to know that one, your head size uh, is, is good, your soft tissue tensioning is good, that allows you to say, I'm good with this, I'm going to move forward. Yeah, so I'll do very similar to what you did. I'll also kind of make sure that I can abduct and external rotate fully to, to 90-90 and they pretty much stay centered with the subscap still off and, you know, making sure that uh, they're not, there's no impingement areas with rotation. So, you know, I think if anything, I think Carl Basmania said to me once, the loosest the shoulder will ever be is, is on the table. So if you're going to go between, go looser, not tighter in general, you know, tighter is going to burn you with, with stiffness post-op, I think. But, uh, yeah, this looks like a nice soft tissue balanced shoulder. This is a, for a, a Delco patient, which is Delaware County, Pennsylvania. This is a pretty thin, pretty thin guy. I usually expect, a, you know, as Boston says, a fluffy four. This is like a fluffy one. <laughs> That's a, a couple packs of Paul Malls that have kind of <laughs> prevented him from having any nutrition. So, <laughs> uh, Brent, what, do you th what about you in regards to interoperative uh, tensioning or – Soft tissue balance. Yeah, I, mean, I think what, what Joe just said pretty much sums it up. I think, I think this looks good. I mean, I, I like to, to have the arm in neutral and have it slide out, you know, about 50% and have it come back in. And now the residents have a real hard time. You know, I think the, the hardest part to appreciate that is you really got to be in the plane of the scapula because they'll take the arm and, you know, they'll bring in the flexion and then push it back and, and it's going to obviously sit out the back or you can put it in extension and it won't go out at all. So that's important to pay attention to. Anand, do you uh, do you put the arm on your on your Mayo stand at like 30 of abduction and rotation, and also just check and make sure that your subscap 
kind of comes back nicely uh, prior to moving forward? Or do you just say, this looks good, I'm, I'm going to move forward? Yeah, I mean, I do what you said. With, with this system, there's a little less subluxation. But I also want to, I take the arm out of the pneumatic arm holder when I do this part. And I definitely make sure that the LTO or your peel or your tenotomy gives you good external rotation, or I have to do some other work, you know, to make sure they get that passive external rotation. And I think at the very end, I don't know if you're going to mention a very powerful technique for preventing posterior subluxation or helping you to correct is to close the interval at the very end too. I mean, I think there's nothing worse than to, I'm a big believer in thin to win. I go with small heads. I will uh, measure the head and whatever the, they measure on the back table, I will go down. So historically I used to use for my anatomics, I would use the the Pew uh, global AP and they would be 40, 44, 48, 52, 56. So if I measured uh, 52, I would go with 48. If I measured a 48, I'd go 44. Uh, these systems now, uh, they have, they go by two millimeters. So I'll, sometimes I'll even go four millimeters lower and I'll go much lower because you tend to forget that. Cause when you look at these films, it's kind of like doing a radial head. When, when you do your head, if you go line to line, it always looks over stuff because you don't take into account the cartilage on the humeral head. So when you do a radiograph of a arthroplasty, you're seeing all the cartilage also, so it looks huge. So I tend to go a lot thinner and I'll go two to four millimeters lower than what my head cut typically is. And I, I find that thin the wind or smaller heads give me much better soft tissue balancing, much better range of motion, uh, less overstuffing and better looking x-rays. Comments on that, Joe? I like to say undersize or revise. Thin to wind works as well, but yes, same, same concept. So if it looks big, big on the post-op x-ray, it probably is too big for the patient, and you're probably going to struggle with motion. Honor? Yeah, I usually keep the same diameter as what I've resected, but very, very uncommon to go above an 18-millimeter thickness head. I mean, if you're getting into the 20s, you're, something's, something's amiss. So for me, once again, I wanted to go stemless. Unfortunately, stemless wasn't available. And this is what? Is this, uh, how many millimeters is this stem uh, on? I think it's 52. Yeah, is it, yeah it, it's between 40 and, 40 and 60. So it's, it's really not that long. So this is, this is my post-op x-ray. Gorgeous. So that's the pseudo-AP. And here's an axillary. Joe? Yeah, the same tech again for this x-ray too, huh? Yes. <laughs> so that's good. This is an abducted AP. And that's abducted AP axillary. And that's one of their better ones. So Joe, what do you think about the implant itself? Uh, I think the implant position looks great. I think the, the size is right. I mean, if I was gonna be hypercritical, maybe you could have taken a little bit more bone on, on the humeral side. The glenoid correction is, is hard to tell based on this axillary, but you know, it looks, looks great. Brent? Looks good, looks nicely sized. So this is him at six weeks. So that, that's, a, that's a, a fluoro picture of Joe in the weight room in the background, lifting weights, just to let you know. Oh, nice. I thought that was all his forward elevation was, was 30 degrees. <laughs> Do you start therapy, Jack? Formal therapy, home program, surgeon directed? How do you do their therapy? I start them at therapy at 10 days. 
I, for all my uh, anatomics, I, even if I get great external rotation in the OR, I avoid any external rotation any more than zero degrees for the first six weeks. I'm, I'm big on getting the LTO to heal or the subscapula. And I haven't had much issues with stiffness uh, post-op. So I do uh, PT uh, starting at 10 days, whether it be home or, or outpatient. I, I don't like therapists really cranking on them. And then moving forward, it's, it's, you know, it's more so kind of what the patient wants. But I, I tell them, you know, don't kill yourself. Home-based, I, I definitely teach them a home-based therapy program. Outpatient, I just make sure that they, that they are rehabbed with people who try to, that I'm comfortable with, if, if that makes any sense. I'm, I'm much less aggressive in regards to therapy with uh, my RSAs. I'm much more aggressive in regards to getting them in the PT with their TSAs as opposed to the RSAs. I feel that the implant with the RSAs tends to do the work in time. Females need a little bit more work in regards to strengthening their deltoid as opposed to males, but that's just kind of my philosophy. His pre-op motion, like I said, was 84 flexion and five of external rotation into the sacrum. So pretty happy right now uh, at six weeks, but uh, he's now about four and a half months out and uh, doing very well from a, from a range of motion perspective. Brent, any comments? No, I think he looked great. I mean, I, you know, I think the the problem is, is we all have patients with that same same X-ray, you know, that that really never never get above 120 or 130 and just struggle with it. I mean, you know, this guy looks like he'd be much happier with an anatomic uh, than a reverse. But the ones that that stay stiff stick out in your head. Yeah, you so 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 questions to you guys. Now that there are more. RSAs being put in for osteoarthritics and we're doing the almost an anatomic RSA where if their cuff's intact, we're preserving their cuff. Uh, have you noticed still with stiffness or decreased internal rotation in your RSAs as compared to your anatomics? Is it still the, uh, a good anatomic is better than a good reverse? Obviously you have to kind of uh, match pathology. Now that more people are doing RSAs for osteoarthritis with intact cuffs, and you maybe have done it in your patient population and you're preserving their cuff, have you noticed a difference in regards to your range of motion for your RSAs compared to the anatomics that you that you have done? I still think my best anatomic beats my best reverse. Uh, and I agree. Uh, but my average reverse probably beats my average anatomic. Um, and now you can debate. And, and you know, does it take longer for your anatomics to get better than your reverses in that circumstance? Or do you find that it's, it's kind of, I, I think, I think anatomics have a uh, longer recovery window. I think it's easy for an anatomic to come in at 18 months and still be uh, to still be better than they were at 12 months or six months. A reverse oftentimes will plateau at uh, 12 months, in my experience. Now, the internal rotation, I think, is still a little bit difficult to get consistently on a reverse versus an anatomic. You know, the complications are different. You know, I think the complications we used to be worried about in 2005 are very different now with an RSA. So, thankfully, they're, they're, they're less so than they used to be. But, you know, on both ends, they can be significant. Uh, a chromial fracture can be a significant problem as can, you know, cuff failure can be a significant problem. So, you know, I, I, like we said, there's a lot of data points we have to look at. 
to make the right decision for a patient. Hopefully we oftentimes get it right, but sometimes we get it wrong. All I can tell you is the midterm data shows that RSA for OA is at least equivocal to TSA for OA. It's a completely different operation with different complication profiles. So um, more and more data is coming out. That's still midterm Jawa's work and, and some from Keener. And um, those are some biases associated with that. Some are selection biases with that, but I think you'll see different complication profiles with RSA for OA using a lateralized system. Brett, and any comments about this case that you found interesting? Well, I think one thing we didn't talk about is, is subscap management. And I think that if even if you pull just the four of us, we probably have a different approach to subscap management on a consistent basis in an anatomic. Um, like for myself, I You're usually will do a, I'll do a peel. Uh, rarely will do a tenotomy or an osteotomy. And for what reason? I've used it throughout my career. It's worked well. I know people have turned to osteotomy, but if at most, you know, most the, national the, meetings, if you the, the literature the audience, states, they're all they're all equal. So, Athwal studies show do what's yeah. good in your hands. Peel tenotomy. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that if you look at the data, it seems to support that people do a third, a third, a third. That's kind of high volume surgeons are, are split in thirds. So, I, I don't I don't know what this group is like, but Brent, what do you do? I do appeal. I mean, I, I used to go between appeal and an osteotomy. Now that I'm pretty much doing all stemless for anatomic, I, I prefer appeal. Um, it, de- it definitely I, sucks seeing that piece of bone along the inferior glenoid uh, in your f- successive post-op x-rays. That's for sure when you do an LTO. You mean when it fails? Yeah. When your hands are sewn on backwards and you can't repair properly like me. So... I think there are more LTO failures than people want to admit. Um, I well, do, well, there's more I, peel and tenotomy failures. You just don't see it on film. Yeah. And, and we know yeah. that. Maybe. Uh, a peel I definitely use when someone has severe stiffness. I do think you can get back their motion by repairing it medialized along the humeral neck. So I think each patient has their own. I wouldn't do an LTO on like a you know older rheumatoid patient. Um, I do more of a peel or a tenotomy there. But are you doing many anatomics in those patients anymore? Yeah. So the sure. older the older rheumatoid, you're still doing an anatomic? So they have a good cuff, little old lady. She's not gonna out she's not gonna outlive an anatomic. Yeah, but she might outlive her cuff. So you'll get that stress fracture. I don't she won't get a stress fracture I mean, either. You know what, dude? Your your numbers are pretty high. You don't need to revise any more of your own stuff. So I'm surprised that you would do that. You don't need any more surgeries. <laughs> I'm surprised how, how how genteel and affable we were to each other. Today. I don't think we drank enough prior to this uh, webinar, but um, we're just worried that you would come down on us too hard. Me <laughs> being in the room with you, with you, uh, gentlemen, say that loosely. I appreciate you guys in, in, in your comments. Any input? Uh, last thoughts? Uh, oh, Joe? I would say uh, great case, Jack, and um, just a reminder to the audience. Uh, Register for Mid-Atlantic Shoulder Elbow Society, September 9th, Washington, D.C., Ritz-Carlton. Uh, we have a nice reception the night before, September 8th there, and uh, great meeting that day. Keynote speaker, Brian Cole, 40-plus faculty. Thank you to the Ortho Bullets for uh, co-sponsoring uh, this Coin Flips and Controversies uh, webinar. Can I say that it'll be CME credits? Yes. Yes, that's right. And uh, I just want to say that we will have CME available for this year's meeting. Uh, and please try to bring your friends, uh, as well as the night before cocktail hour sponsored by 
Network Rehab Solutions is a is a great time to network. Yeah, I, I also for uh, I know OrthoBullets is heavy in in regards to trainees, uh, interns, residents, and fellows. Uh, if you do come down to the meeting, uh, as far as uh, residents or so, and you're interested in shoulder and elbow surgery or sports or hand, there are tremendous amounts of academic faculty that are very available that you can meet and talk to in regards to future considerations for, for fellowship, job opportunities. It's, uh, we try to make it as uh, open as possible for you to get the maximum from it from an academic standpoint in addition to the social aspect. So as a trainee, it's inexpensive. We do have scholarships. It's an easy train ride, but your ability to meet fellowship directors, program directors is, is at your fingertips and guidance and mentorship is something that we are, uh, are very big on and we look forward to. So we, we hope that all, all the trainees that are out there, uh, please reach out to us. Uh, we are more than happy to assist you in any way uh, in your in your training in regards to shoulder and elbow surgery, and uh, we look forward to seeing you in Brent Weaselstown. Right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right. Take care.